Orphan Black, the next chapter, is back for season two, and it's bigger than ever. The official continuation of the hit TV show stars Emmy Award-winning actress Tatiana Maslany as all of the clones. And this season, she's joined by original TV show cast members Jordan Gavaris as Felix, Evelyn Brochu as Delphine, and Christian Brune as Donnie. Season two picks up where season one left off with, spoiler alert, the secret of the clones finally exposed to the general public. Hundreds of previously unaware clones grapple with the news that they are part of a massive military science experiment. Meanwhile, anti-clone protesters fight to have the clones' rights restricted. Caught in the middle, the Sestras want peace, and when an unforeseen threat turns their world upside down, they must join forces with former enemies to protect the ones they love. Orphan Black, the next chapter, is available right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to listen and subscribe, or visit realm.fm for more information. From Sundance TV and Sundance Now, this is The Truth About True Crime. I'm Amanda Knox. Join me as I explore the dark corners, dig into the unresolved questions, and get personal with the humans at the heart of Sundance True Crime documentaries. Tony and Susie were our gods. Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Amen, Christian. It was a collision of two very dangerous people who then created this religious foundation. The IRS started getting involved, and then he started these beatings. Alamo is accused of child abuse for allegedly ordering the beating of an 11-year-old California boy. But he called himself a Teflon pastor. Tony had called and sent us a message saying that everybody needed to get out now. People in this United States of America would like to shut my mouth. Somebody said, nobody knew we were here. And I said, yeah, nobody knew you were here. And then somebody else said, we could have died and nobody would have known we ever existed. So I knew the level of their fear. It was life and death. This season, I'm going behind the scenes of the four-part docuseries Ministry of Evil, The Twisted Cult of Tony Alamo. Last time, we talked with Summer Hagen and Amy Eddy, the spiritual wives who testified against Tony Alamo and helped take down the cult. In our final episode this season, we're going to take a step back and look at this whole story from a storyteller's point of view. Like, how do you make art out of tragedy? What are your responsibilities when dealing with sensitive material like this? Having been at the center of a decade-long true crime saga, I saw countless other people frame my life in books and movies and articles in irresponsible, salacious, outright false and slanderous ways. Even when people got the details right, they often reduced the story to murder porn, or if it was in my favor, injustice porn. I also saw some really smart, humanizing, and compassionate storytelling that went beyond reveling in the atrocity. After reading Debbie Shriver's book, Whispering in the Daylight, and watching Ministry of Evil, I'm glad to say the storytellers who invested themselves in this case did so with compassion and integrity. I do have to say that the title Ministry of Evil rubs me the wrong way, because good and evil thinking is black and white thinking, and the world is never black and white. I'm not saying that Tony Alamo didn't do horrible things, but as soon as you call something evil, you stop trying to understand it, because you think you know what it is, that you've answered all the questions. But you haven't. To go even deeper, don't miss Ministry of Evil, The Twisted Cult of Tony Alamo, now available on Sundance Now. Download the app 
or go to SundanceNow.com to start watching. The first choice that every storyteller makes is what story to tell. It's not always strategic, nor should it be. Sometimes the best stories crash through your window like a brick, and other times they sneak up on you. They get attached to you without you even realizing it. They won't leave you alone. Here's executive producer Leslie Mattingly. What's really interesting about this whole series is that the series sort of came to us rather than us to it. We were first introduced to the Alamo group because I was given a pamphlet on my way into work from one of the current members. Obviously didn't pay much attention to it because you get stuff all the time as you're walking through the New York City subways and just concerned about getting into work. I took one and normally would never do that, but I did, and I stuffed it in my purse, and when I got up to my desk, it kind of reappeared, and it was a very strange-looking pamphlet that said in big, bold letters on the front, my commutation, and there was a picture of the Beatles, so <laughs> it was like, oh, what are they, what, what, what sentence would they be commuted for? Not quite sure, but the way it was written was very hard to follow, but it was clearly written by a man who felt as though he had been wronged and he had been convicted of crimes that he didn't commit, which he never explicitly talks about the crimes, but it was clear that this is a story that had gone on for a long time and he was pastor of a church and now he was serving this 175-year prison sentence and he was old and he was dying and his last request is is if everybody could, you know, get together, write letters to President Trump and get his sentence commuted. So, of course, that was a little intriguing. So I started Googling his name, Bernie Lazar Hoffman, a.k.a. Tony Alamo, and various articles came up that were from 1968 all the way through to 2009. So, obviously, there was a big story there. At what point did you realize this was a, a story to follow? That's Fenton Bailey, executive producer. Because, as you say, it, it's so weird that you people get given leaflets and you just throw them on the ground. Like, what, A, possessed you to put it in your bag, and then, B, like, what made you think this was a story? The point that I realized it was a big story when, you know, it just so happened I was kind of between projects, so I had some time. I was looking for a new story to begin with. And I just remember every time I would Google a new article, I would turn around to my colleague and be like, did you know those jean jackets were made by him? Did you know the celebrity? We all had those in the 80s or people had those and wore those. This guy made those. He was a designer as well. So it just it kept getting more and more bizarre. It was from I started the Jesus Freak movement in the 1960s in California to the show started popping up with Susan and Tony that was just fabulous and, and just interesting. The Tony and Susan Alamo show is fascinating. There's a clip on YouTube of Tony Alamo dressed like a sparkly Johnny Cash crooning Jesus is the only way. When you watch the show, it's clear that Tony and Susan were themselves storytellers. And when you see that, you realize that storytelling is at the heart of this whole saga. They sold a story to their members and performed that story to lock in their loyalties. It was a captivating story. It had to have been, or they wouldn't have been as successful as they were for so long. And even in the aftermath, with Tony and Susan both dead, the story they told, that a few loyalists are still repeating, 
has enough potency to snare other storytellers, like Leslie Mattingly, who worked to reveal the parts of the story that Tony and Susan kept hidden. And I got called to the office, which is also where the phone was that Tony would talk on. And Tony said, you know, I heard you called me a liar. And he said, you know, the Bible says that if you smite the simple, the wise will be made aware. And God's telling me that you need to be smitten. So he told four people to come forward. I was 13 years old. And one at a time, they pulled their arm back as far as they could, and they smacked me in the face. I started really writing it in 2013-14. That's Debbie Shriver, author of the book Whispering in the Daylight. And the first thing I did was I went to Arkansas to meet the kids, and this family had a big cookout. And they had a big fire going in the backyard, and it's a big yard. One young man that I wanted to meet, I knew his story. I knew he had testified in the trial against Tony. And a lot of those children didn't. They might have had to, but they didn't. So he was sitting outside by himself. So I went out and sat down and just started talking to him. And as we were talking, more and more children came out. And honestly, there were about 150 children sitting in that yard. And voices were just joining in. And I threw out questions such as, did you all have birth certificates? And they say, no, nope, didn't have birth certificates. Some of them did, but very few. And I said, well, how did you get Social Security cards? And some of them still didn't have them. And I said, hmm. And then all of a sudden, it was quiet. And somebody said, nobody knew we were here. And I said, yeah, nobody knew you were here. And then somebody else said, we could have died and nobody would have known we ever existed. So I knew the level of their fear. It was life and death. So I said to the kids, okay, I'm going to be at this hotel for the next two days, and my door is going to be open. I'm going to have it latched so that you can come in and out, and whoever wants to talk to me, just come. But people came and came and came. As an interviewer myself, I try not to repeat the mistakes that journalists made with me when they felt entitled to interrogate me. It pushed me away. Debbie's decision to make herself available in this non-threatening way was incredibly useful for establishing trust. And she wouldn't have been able to tell this story without that. I heard the horrible stories. And at that same time, Marcus, who I think is not, he's a sibling group, came and said to me, um, he grew up in Fort Smith, and we were talking. And I said, I'm going to Fort Smith tomorrow. And I really... God, I wish you could go with me because the compound was still operating. I said, you can show me where everything is. And we went, and the, the foster parents who had adopted them drove us to the compound, and we get out of the car, went to this apartment complex that they owned. He went in. He said, why didn't you ever come get us? When they were taken by the law, They the parents had a choice. They could be returned to the parents if the parents left the church. Why didn't you come get us? I loved you. You loved me. You were a good father. Why didn't you come get us? And his father, I think up to then, thought he was coming back to stay. And his father called him a reprobate, called him a weasel, called him every horrible thing under the sun. And then Marcus went forward and 
hit him on the chest and said, you are my father. You were always my hero. Now I guess I'm going to have to be my own hero. And he came running out. He slammed the door really hard, and we all jumped because it was like a gun, because it was just... And he said, did you get all of that? I want every bit of that in the book. Did you get all of that? And I said, yes, I did. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. That day, I think I earned the trust of the children. And that day, I was put on the hit list. <laughs> I got on the radar of, of Tony Alamo. I mean, Debbie, maybe you should talk about <laughs> yeah, what, what being on the hit list means. Like, what, what, you... uh, Yes, I'd like to interject before she does that. When she told my first conversation with Debbie, when she was telling me the story about Marcus, or maybe it was our second conversation, she goes, and that's when I was put on the hit list. And don't worry, you'll be on it too. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and this was when Tony was still alive in prison. And, yeah. you know, that gave me pause. I mean, I, I was like, do I really want to do this? Obviously, we have to because it's a story and we're journalists and we're, you know, and we, we need to tell the story that we've agreed to tell. He used to call himself the Teflon pastor, like Teflon Don, like John Gotti. And he said he could take a switchblade, slice somebody's throat, Dump them on the ground, have them bleed out, and everybody in the cult would say it was okay. It was the right thing to do because he was the prophet of God. Yeah, it's a little disconcerting, and um, I really took it as a compliment. And I think part of that is because I was there with the with the FBI agent and the judge and prosecuting attorney, and I was the only woman on the list. But it also does give you reason to pause. And today on my book tour, I have had followers disrupt. I just feel sad when I see them because they're broken. So you recognize this was a story to tell, but how do you keep yourself from losing it, basically? Like, I mean... As Eleanor can attest, I don't think I, I, think I did lose it. Well, jokes aside, it was very, very trying. Yeah, it's hard not to become involved. And you're speaking to people on the phone and... You know, and you're seeing all their personal photos, and it's, it's, it's very emotional for everyone, I think. That's Eleanor West, an associate producer for the doc series. And I know there were many nights where I would call Debbie. We were, our texts back and forth, like, I, Debbie, you know, and she, she kept me grounded. Eleanor and I have worked on many true crime series over the years, dozens. And, you know, there's a bad guy, then there's a victim, and the victim's families, and a trial, perhaps. And, and it's kind of easy to build your story around that. But as Fenton just said, this is limitless. I mean, it, the ripple effects over the past 50 years of what the ministry did to not only its members, but members' families, parents who couldn't see their children anymore back in the late 60s. Part of the, the difficulty in telling the story is that many people, including people on the outside, didn't perceive these things as crimes until it was too late. Well, it wasn't really presented as a, as a crime, was it? It was a, no. on the face of it, it was a Christian, a Christian church. Exactly. And, you know, I was just thinking of reading these stories and revisiting them of the separation of immigrant children at the border and how that just impacted people. And once they realized what was going on, it suddenly went from being an immigration story to a, a, a human story of, and you realize, or I certainly realized that the cult of Tony Alamo was very much about, yes, children being born into the cult, because I guess once you're born into a cult, what else do you know? So you must be easily programmable or adaptable. But then, having done that, they would break families up 
all the time in myriad ways. They'd kick the father out. They'd kick the mother out. They wouldn't let the mother or father be together. They'd remarry the mother to someone else. They'd kick the kids out. It was this wholesale, deliberate separation of breaking up of families and the trauma of that. They didn't know family structure the way we we do. And so when these kids were placed in foster care, they were separated again and placed in foster care, but they didn't really even know the traditional family home model. They didn't grow up with a mom and a dad and siblings in a house in a constant sort of way. It was just terrifying. And as you said, the ones who are born there are wired differently. And there's a part of them that will never be okay. They don't have a context. If you join a cult, um, you're still brainwashed and it's awful and it can ruin you for life when you come out. But at least there's a pre-cult identity that you can tap into and find in some way. These kids don't have one. Mr. Alamo would routinely threaten to throw people out. And you have to understand that when you threaten somebody in a group like this with expulsion, it's like a death threat. Those people were there because they thought it was the only place in the world they could be. What Fenton and Debbie are getting at here is that, as a storyteller, one of the things you have to be most careful of is being mindful that your perspective is not necessarily the perspective of your subjects. That's especially true with the case of these cult survivors. You can't assume anything about their perspective, their history, or motivations. Their world is so different. You can't be quick to judge. You have to learn to appreciate their stakes in their own lives. And it's only by doing that that you can discover the emotional stakes of the story you're telling about them. My mom used to say, if I'm wrong, everything's fine. But if I'm right, you're going to go to hell. The Word of God says, I love them who fear me. They were charlatans. And these people believed, so truly believed. How do you not take this home with you and stay up all night? It's really emotional speaking to everyone, all the interviewees, reading all their stories. Part of, to add on to what Leslie was saying when we start the process, one of the things we do is just so much research and so much reading. And so I really got immersed really quickly. And another thing I was trying to find is what we would show when our interviewees are speaking, what is going to be on the screen. And Susan Alamo in particular is so striking. She really had a look with the bottle of blonde hair, long red fingernails, beautiful gowns she would wear just around the compound or on television. So, you know, I started... Um, looking around, looking at AP and Getty and finding all this footage from the 70s of her speaking, preaching, having people sing. And it was really interesting. I mean, the footage that exists out there is really compelling. She has a certain coldness and warmth to her at the same time that comes across on the footage. Obviously, I never met her, but it's really something that you can't stop watching. How do you support yourselves? I mean, admittedly, that when people come to join you, they give you all their worldly goods, I suppose. No, that... most of them don't have a thing. Most of them don't have a thing. I'll make a deal with you. Every hippie that comes to the church with money and possessions, I'll put salt and pepper on him and eat them if you'll eat the ones, the other ones. Would you do that? With documentary storytelling, there's a whole wrinkle about what footage to include. And it's not always the most shocking or dramatic footage you want. 
Sometimes it's something subtle that captures the spirit of the whole dynamic in a single moment. You know it when you see it. Benji's home video. Benjamin was adopted by Tony Alamo and is a former member. We were blown away that by that. That was really incredible. I can remember the day it came in and we were like, did right. you see this? I mean, it really brought it home, especially the one in the, um, I think when Benji sings. He is sing- he's, he's singing, singing right? to a very ill Susan Alamo. And it's the only footage we had seen at that point of her right before she died. And she looks visibly ill in the footage. Wearing a big fur coat. Yeah. Right in the in the cafeteria where everybody ate all their meals. And they kind of walk in and you see everybody like, Mama Susie's here, Mama Susie. And they still called her Grandma Susie. Right, right. The kids. And along with that, there was, there was um, the kids went up to sing Christmas carols to her um, while she was inside the mansion or the spec house, is what they used to call it. Uh, and she, she kind of went up to the window, and you see her ghostly face coming through the window, and the kids are all singing oh. carols to her. And one of the carols that they used to sing, which you know we heard on this tape, was instead of Santa Claus is coming to town, it was Tony and Susie are coming to town. And they changed the words to say they see you when you're sleeping, right. they know when you're awake, you know, so you better be good for goodness sake. And they sing that to her. It's pretty chilling yeah. to watch. And there are loads of children. I mean, there were dozens and dozens of children up there Yeah. on the hill singing. So you wonder. You want to go and do the recreational area? Yeah. Okay, let's go up there now. Hello. Mr. Andrasak. <laughs> Papa Tony. <laughs> <laughs> How you doing, Fatty? How are you, Thomas? You doing okay today? That's great. And there's also a ton of local news station footage that we got some of the raw footage of um, an anchor pouring around the ridge compound with Tony Alamo. And he's pointing everything out and he's pointing out the beautiful houses and the beautiful beds and everything, according to our interviewees, had been staged to look amazing for the news cameras. And they kept inviting cameras into the compound to show what a wonderful life it was. And, and Tony looks excited on the footage to be, to be walking around and showing everything off. Susan Alamo did not want the scrutiny of California State, the IRS, the Labor Department and stuff. She wanted to get away where maybe things weren't quite so regulated. But what we were told was we need to go back to where the gospel was strong, you know, the Bible Belt. We're getting ready to build a big new church, amen? We, of course, went up there to film, and it's still all there for the most part. And it is a beautiful spot. I mean, it's breathtaking. It's, you know, and then you think about what went on in that spec house, which, you know, we got the chance to go in and tour, and it was chilling being in there. Um, You know, Randy was there at that time, and, you know, walking inside that house, you just couldn't shake the chill and the coldness going down in the basement with Rebecca and Benjamin and, you know, them kind of like uh, Debbie had said about Mark, Marcus, that, you know, they, they regressed and they were back there. And it was it was scary. You felt what they went through. Another storytelling note here. Place is always a character, too. Sometimes it's as important as the people whose tragedies unfold there. The geometry and architecture of a space, the character of a town, these are crucial elements. 
So we used to sit here, me and the girls, while we were waiting for Tony to call back. Yeah. You know, when he would wait for us to get called in. Mm -hmm. I remember many times sitting in this room, waiting and sitting by the bar. Yeah. And like reading and praying, like praying for mercy, yeah. knowing what was about to happen. Wow. And then they would call us from the back. Do you feel the film, the series you've made, is exactly the series you thought you were going to make at the beginning? Because the reason I ask you that is, having read the, the, the treatment that was given to us, like to say, well, do you want to be involved with this? It was an incredible catalog and story, but it didn't have the emotional, gut-wrenching horrors that I feel the series ultimately has. Nor should it have. You have to let the story tell you how it needs to be told. You can't decide that up front, how it's going to affect you. I think you're right. And I think part of the reason for that is, you know, something very significant happened in between, which was Tony dying. I think we were eight months into pre-production at that point when he passed away. And I do think people were a little bit more free to talk, um, maybe in the interviews, because uh, stories came out in the interviews that we didn't necessarily know from the pre-interviews that the treatment was based on. Um, and I think Fenton had hit on it earlier, is that it, it was such an expansive story with so many personal anecdotes that really, you know, if it were up to me, I'd, I, I needed it to be a 20-part series and get everybody's story in, and each hour was going to be on one person. We had to kind of figure out a way to tell it more or less through the eyes of Tony Alamo and, and what he did, you know, what his ministry was all about and, and how it affected the people's lives that we interviewed. So I think it changed slightly in that regard. Even with him having passed away, we still were able to get his deposition. Yeah. So you still hear from him as an older man in prison answering all these questions you may have wanted to ask him in the interview. He's still in there and it's almost more poignant knowing he's gone and having all the voices of the second generation members in it as well. I think that's a huge thing for us is when we were able to get that deposition. I mean, it was 12 hours, you know, an interview with him, and that was from 2012 and 2013. Mm -hmm. So it was the most recent story we were going to get, and we were able to tell his story in his own words um, because of that deposition. That deposition was really key in being able to almost fact check in a way or get his side of the story in as well. That piece of archive, the, the deposition was like, oh, I mean, it was because you hear all these different opinions and you fragments, but then you get the complete insanity of the person. Like, I was like, this person's crazy. Nobody would dare come to me and say, we're going to remove you, except that kid that I had his butt beat. <laughs> We now, agree you on that. Try to remove me, well, I'll beat your butt. Let's try it this way. Let uh, me out there again, and I'll do the same thing. Other... I'm a dangerous dude, man. But that's what's so extraordinary is like how people can follow someone so clearly insane. A sociopathic leader knows how to hook people. Is very smart in that way. You said something that was, I was like, it was so good. It was like, uh, oh yes, that's it. It's not what you see in them. It's what they see in you. I can tell you that they no longer operate in Arkansas and Texas. That's David Carter, the lawyer you met last episode. I believe they still have 
organized services in California. I think there is still some operations in New York City. I think there are current accounts of some of the old warmed over literature still being distributed. There's not that compound with a fence around it and a piece of property that you can point to and that's where they are. It's almost more insidious because they're sprinkled around and about. I have certainly been approached, challenged, and whenever that happens, I think I'm on the right track. The mind control, the brainwashing is that powerful. It's gonna stick around for a while. As long as you have disaffected people who are hopeless, you're gonna have some spider that's gonna come along and take them. The biggest takeaway from the story is the metamorphosis that I've seen in the victims. Everything in this case worked the way it should have. The criminal prosecution, uh, Tony got his day in court. He was found guilty. He was appropriately punished. And I'm confident that this series is going to open a lot of people's eyes to what can happen. More importantly, how you can overcome your past and your victimization and go on to lead an incredibly happy and productive life. I hope that those family members who have children who are in cults, that they can see this and themselves have hope that their kids can get out of this, that there is a way out, and not to ever stop trying to get them out. Because we've seen it. We've, I mean, everybody that we interviewed was once a member, and they've come out the other side. The common theme that people would say to me is, if you see something that doesn't look right, it's probably not, call the police. Don't just let it go, because it's dangerous. I mean, this was such a dangerous place for these people and these kids. And had it not been for the courage of certain ex-members and these girls that came forward, it could still be going on. They're in places you might not think, so I would never have thought to look at the flyers in the subway until Leslie got one and really actually stopped and read it. And now I do see them everywhere. And I think Debbie, you say in our show that cult, neighbor, cult members really are our neighbors and people in all sorts of organizations are everywhere and you don't necessarily stop to think about it or to open your eyes. I wanted the book to wake people up and I'm so excited about the docuseries because that takes this story on a bigger stage and I think we need to say what does this mean for our communities? We really need to take care of our communities and we, we can make a difference and this docuseries shows how we can one-on-one -on -one make a difference. Yeah, I, I mean, I would second that, you know, and, and especially all the voices that you do see in the documentary. They're, they're all people that, they're, they're just like us. They're people that you, you know, like Debbie said, you, you expect cult members to be some certain type, but they're not. You know, it can happen to anybody. And like Summer said so eloquently before, you know, it's up to you to get yourself out of it. And I think what Fenton said before is also so poignant, is that why are we seeing an upsurge of cults and fringe activity right now? like we did in the late 60s. And, you know, we need to figure out how to fix our society so that people don't feel compelled and don't feel disenfranchised. And, and I think that's, that's a huge takeaway that I hope people get from the docuseries as well. We've got work to do. This final note is about impact, how the story affects the people in it, the world outside, and also how it affects you, the storyteller. To be responsible storytellers, we have to remember that even though in our minds in the midst of our work crafting a narrative, it can seem like the subjects we focus on are isolated. They aren't. They have a context outside the story. Even as audience members consuming stories, we can fall into this trap 
seeing the subjects of stories as only existing inside the bubble of the narrative. Maybe the biggest question of all is, what's the point of telling a story like this? For Leslie and Debbie, this story seems to be a chance to not only encourage us to be on the lookout for charismatic con artists, but even more importantly, a chance to show sympathy and support for those who get taken in, instead of judging them. The stories we tell often say more about who we are than they do about the people in them. And so do the stories we choose to listen to. This one is about having compassion for people we didn't think we could understand. Brainwashed cult members? I hope you agree, it's never that simple. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Be sure to check out the four-part docuseries Ministry of Evil, The Twisted Cult of Tony Alamo on Sundance TV. And stay tuned for our next season. I'm Amanda Knox, and this is The Truth About True Crime. Thank you.